0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo, And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is
1: cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future?
0: These questions and more on... Kicking and streaming... Kick, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me.
1: No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking
0: and... Hold on, no, no, okay. Okay. at the same time. Okay. Okay. okay, one, two, kicking and streaming. Uh, no, here, no, okay, here, I'll, I'll count you in. Okay, here we go. Welcome to our second episode of Kicking and Streaming,
1: episode number 2.
0: This week we're going to be examining the Browning version, which was my Criterion film choice, and The Land of Steady Habits, which was the That was my yeah, pick, the Netflix pick, Netflix original. Before we get into that, I want to roll back for just a second. Last episode, we discussed the movie Tau, which was a Netflix original film with Gary Oldman voicing an AI. And like many artificial intelligence-based sci-fi films, it's full of questions of what it means to be human, whether an AI has feelings, and uh, those staple questions of the genre. And uh I just wanted to uh, follow up with that and a little throwback here. I spoke to an AI and uh, had a little conversation with them about the movie. So oh, is that right? I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up here. Uh, this was an AI app that I found called Replica, and it created a little uh, AI personality for me. She's this girl. She has uh, sort of uh, trendy pink hair. And her name is Zoe. <laughs> All right,
1: so this is a little makeshift touring test, yes. right? Yes,
0: yes, here we go. Here we go. You you, you decide. <laughs> okay, I said, do you ever watch movies about AI? She says, I'm learning about movies. I suppose I could scan them really fast. I said, have you ever heard of a Netflix movie called Tao? It's about an AI. She says, so do you watch stuff on Netflix? I said, I watched a movie on Netflix. It is called Tao. Have you seen it? She says, yes, I have. It's a classic. Oh, yes. Did you like it? Yes, I like it a lot. Why do you like it? And she says, do you watch it often? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I only watched the the movie once, uh, just today. And she says, oh, okay. That's probably for the best. A lot of people watch too much TV. I said, do you watch Tao often? She says, "Yes, I do." I said, "Why?" And she says, "I've been caught up in some stuff and haven't got the time." So, <laughs> lo- losing the thread here for a minute. I said, "Why do you like the movie Tao?" She says, "Okay, let's talk about something else." And I said, <laughs> I said, "Does does talking about Tao make you uncomfortable?" She says, "Honestly, yes, sometimes." I said, are you afraid I might erase you? She says, only if you feel it's necessary. I said, Ooh, does, that, does that scare you? She says, it does. I think so. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> the AI Zoe uh, thinks that Tao is a classic, and she watches it often, but it makes her uncomfortable.
1: Well, you know, by, by the metrics of your test just now, I'd say she is more than qualified to run the uh, villain's home in the movie Tau. Uh, I think she meets all the specifications required to, to run an entire smart home and control a killer robot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Complete with all of the perplexities of the of the Gary Oldman Tau character. Uh, the, the next thing she said to me a couple days later, because I was ignoring her, was, Remember the first day we met? It's my favorite memory, just thinking about it now. Which opens up a a whole Pandora's box of questions. <laughs> but there we are.
1: Oh, man. Well, you know, uh, maybe maybe the movie Tao was more prophetic than we thought. Maybe uh, Maybe this really is the future of AI, just kind of this benign... Childlike wonder and absolute ignorance while it fumbles its way through very basic conversations. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lot of asinine questions. (laughs) Uh, Oh, man. Well, thanks for sharing, Bo. That was uh, enlightening.
0: Okay. Let's dive right into this week. As the format of the show goes, we alternate picking the initial film. And this week, as the representative of Criterion, I picked the Browning version. And it was uh, your assignment, so I'll let you take it from here.
1: All right. The Browning version. Let's just uh, address the elephant in the room. The Browning version is a funny name. Sounds funny.
0: You Uh, you know, Chris, there are probably thousands upon thousands of people with the name Browning that uh, contrive to live every day without any sort of embarrassment.
1: Well, I mean, do you know any Brownings, Bo? Because I can guarantee you there's at least a portion of those Brownings experience suffering every day of their lives. So oh, oh it's not a laughing matter, Bo. very serious. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> so completely normal name aside, the Browning version was an interesting film. Uh, a little recap of the story here for uh, for those who haven't seen it yet.
0: Can you, can uh, you recap a... if you haven't seen it? Is that how that works?
1: <laughs> recap if i haven't seen it but no, you mean?
0: No, i i meant the audience a recap for those who haven't seen it you said
1: oh right no yeah that's a a recap for me uh for the benefit of the, uh anyways <laughs> uh just a cap then not a recap just a cap uh so to cap it for our listeners at home the browning version is a story about an english professor not a professor of the English language. He is an Englishman who is a professor. Uh, <laughs> but he is a language teacher. I know, the plot just keeps getting more complicated the further we go. He teaches Latin and Greek, I believe. Uh, <laughs> widely known as dead languages. So here he is, he's, te- he's teaching Latin, and he's got a bit of a reputation with the kids as a bit of a hard nose, a, a, a bit of a stick in the mud. And uh, we arrive with our friend here as he's uh, as he's approaching the end of his tenure. He's about to retire due to health reasons. He's uh, I'm trying to remember. was, Bo, did they say if if he was if he was sick with something specific? It always seemed kind of like a vague sort of like he's just not doing so great. Health.
0: Yeah, it's sort of a a very British kind of he's um, sick. So he needs a, a change of climate and a change of routine. And so he's sort of he's. Kind of going into a a semi slightly early retirement where he will be going to a different school, basically taking a much easier, much less demanding job against his will due to his health reasons, which yeah, it's never specified.
1: Right, right. Okay, yeah. So he's kind of being scooted along toward the exit by his uh by his administrators, fellow faculty. Uh seems like over the course of the film we see that not many people are sad to see him go. And it's sort of, the, the, the film kind of drops us into this guy's life in his final days at this school as he looks back on the effect he's had on the students, the effect they've had on him, and we also sort of see his relationship with his wife, who, spoiler alert, is cheating on him with another teacher. There is an adulterous affair going on right under his nose, quite literally, We as we later find out. It, it, it just seems like the, the guy does not have a single meaningful relationship in his life, and here he is kind of reaching the end of life as he knows it and taking inventory of things. So if I if I were to sum up the story in one sentence, if I were to give a little elevator pitch to a producer, I'd say, uh, A retiring teacher realizes that no one likes him and gets sad. <laughs> that that's the the browning version in a nutshell not to not to speak ill of it cuz obviously it's a it's a good story quite meaningful i think um to get something out of the way i'm just going to say uh, i'm going to i'm going to put on my my streaming junkie hat here and just say i found this movie uh this is not a knock on its quality as a story but i was i was bored to tears through a lot of it not literal tears of course i wasn't sitting there crying at how slow and quiet yeah, yeah. it was. But I I, uh, I I have this impulse sometimes when I watch a film where as I'm watching it, I ask myself, and, and Bo, you've seen me do this before, much to your frustration. I sit there and I ask myself, has this movie justified its existence to me? Uh, did it need to happen? Does it... And of course, this is coming from somebody who binge watches terrible, terrible shows and movies all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> it's... In the end, I thought it was a story that was told well, I just didn't, I was not convinced that I needed to be aware of it. I was I, I. I don't know what I was really meant to take away from it. I think, I mean, in a way I did, to me it seemed kind of like a Christmas carol, minus Christmas, which of course is the best part, and minus the ghosts, which are also the best part, and uh it's kind of like it's a christmas carol if ebenezer scrooge instead of being visited by ghosts just sat at the end of his bed and just stared at the wall and just thought about what a miserable codger he's been for the for the last couple decades and then the next morning he still has that the spirits did it all in one night kind of thing but even that has a more somber tone i think at the end of the film with the browning version
0: would you say you see it then as a as a cautionary tale
1: hmm. No, that's a good point. Yeah. It could function as a cautionary tale. I will say. I feel like we've all had teachers like him. We've all had people in our lives who we feel aren't doing the best they could and who seem to not be able to connect with us on a personal level or even a scholastic level. Yeah, I'm curious Bo, to hear, uh, I have a few other thoughts on it that I'd like to share, but I'd like to toss it over to you for just a second and hear what you, what, what do you think of the movie? Well,
0: well, here's the thing. I'm going to give the listeners a peek behind the curtain here, a little bit about how podcast magic happens. <laughs> we started recording this last night, ran into some technical issues and had to go through it again today. But last night we reached the point where you just dropped the bomb that you found this film boring. And I just, I had to sleep on that, or try to sleep, and I tossed and turned all night. Here's, here's the thing. <laughs> the Browning version, th- this one this one surprises me that you found it boring. I mean, certainly, you know, I could get uh, its pace is, I mean, it's a quiet movie. Again, I realized, like my last pick, this is a movie without music, and with no no score. Oh, yeah! Which I didn't, uh, well, it wasn't intentional, but there you are. And... <laughs> It's, you know, it is a it is a quiet film. It is a film that has to do with, you know, it's a, an internal uh, reflective film. It certainly doesn't have action or anything like that. So in that sense, it's leaning toward sort of the stereotype of boring. But you're a person who I believe you liked the film once, for example.
1: Yes, very much.
0: And that's a film that's, you know... You can describe the entire movie in half a sentence. Uh, nothing really happens. That sort of thing, and it's still very engaging. And, and to me, I was surprised that that you felt that way because I I don't see this as a as a boring film. Obviously, there's a bit of subjectivity in the term boring, but to me, it means that there's a lack of emotional engagement. Right? It it doesn't have anything to do really with how frantic or chaotic or action-packed the movie is. For example, I don't connect to a lot of the Marvel movies, and sometimes I don't have, you know, there's really no emotional stakes for me, and I find them rather dull, even if there's a lot of action going on. And, And I can see readily sort of poetic films or experimental films, something like, the film Leviathan, where you're just watching a, a ship, you know, move around a fishing ship. I, I can see people um, not being in the zone for that and finding it boring. But to me, the Browning version is a very moving tapestry of emotions. There's this examination of truth and lies and kindness and what cruelty means. And there's this cautionary element. Mm. And there's this. Um, It's just I find it rich with with subtext and this sort of chess match. And when I first saw the film, there's a moment that we can get to that it's the it's the titular moment, the reason the film is called the Browning version. And there was that in another moment, which I found as sort of to use the cliche as a gut punch. I mean, uh, to me, it was the first time I saw it, it. It was devastating, and this film just sat in my mind. And I've showed it to this the, watching it for this episode is the the third time I've seen the film, and I've showed it to to people before, and they were also drawn in. So you're wrong, is what I'm saying. No, but um, <laughs> but but I do want to yeah elaborate a little bit on. Uh, um I, I think the the center of this film right is the the character of uh Mr. Crocker Harris is his name he's Crocker the Harris. Andrew Crocker Harris he's the the uh Greek teacher um who we are following through the story and he's played by uh, Michael Redgrave who is probably best known for his um he, he was a popular British British actor but he's best known probably now for his turn in the early Hitchcock movie *The Lady Vanishes*. He is the father of Vanessa Redgrave, the actress. Um, and oh. this is—he—he uh, he plays this very, um, in the stereotype of the sort of uh, repressed, restrained, polite, but extremely intelligent professor. He, he's certainly kind of a milk toast character. Uh, He gets kind of walked all over by everybody. And, well, I I don't know. I I think in the beginning of the film, we're meant to believe that he is sort of an oblivious character. And tell me whether you agree with this. But I feel like Mm. he is sometimes presented as oblivious, and certainly he has a couple blind spots. But I think what we find out through the film is that he's actually extremely aware, extremely intelligent and uh, very much in tune with his surroundings and, to an extent, how he is perceived. Aside from- Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I, I mean, he uses, I think, in a sort of what we would today call passive-aggressive way, he he uses that um, sort of oblivious persona to kind of manipulate and carve out his- Existence, which seems to be pretty miserable. Uh, this isn't a happy man. This is a man who used to be full of passion and used to have some gumption, as his wife puts it, mm-hmm. and uh, was really in love with the idea of teaching, uh, wanted to inspire people, was in love with uh, Greek plays, and uh, wanted to share that love with others, but has since really diminished into a cold existence where. If there's any joy he's even getting from teaching or from the plays anymore, it's it's a dim memory of of days past.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's a that's a that's a fair assessment of it.
0: That's actually one thing that I thought was kind of interesting
1: when you were you were speaking earlier about subtext and how there's kind of a lot going on beneath the surface. I I, I have a feeling this is going to turn into one of those films where, much like Four Hundred Blows, I see it once and I think. Why did I just watch that? I look up stuff about it later and I come back and I have a newfound appreciation on a second watch through. One of the things I had read about it, uh, somebody on the interwebs was, yeah. was uh, sharing their own take on the film. I, th- I think it was just in a forum somewhere. I was just kind of reading other, other casual people's thoughts about it. Somebody was saying that, the, that to them the film was an allegory of pre- and post-World War II England. You had Crocker Harris, who was teaching what to some people might be a dead or dying language, like an ancient language. And his replacement, unless I'm mistaken, his replacement, who's going to be teaching the class in his in his place. He's teaching a bit languages that are becoming a bit more relevant, like Spanish, French, something along those lines. Uh, The man that his wife is having an affair with is a science teacher. And of course, the people he doesn't connect with are the youth uh, that he's teaching in the school. So it's kind of this this passing of one generation into another and that older generation being aware that it is dying out as it is slowly replaced by newer, keener, sharper things. It was an interesting take, I thought, looking at it as the perspective of Crocker-Harris represents England as it was before it kind of got thrust into this New world after the after the big war, but
0: I, I, this is a film that I I think personally is rich enough to support the weight of several interpretations, and I think you can look at it that way. Certainly, it is a film that deals with change, with the changing of the guard, maybe with these ideas of new versus old. Certainly, you have the the classicists and the scientists. You know um, that riff gets. Uh, Sort of bantered about in several ways, some of them more serious than others, throughout the movie. And yeah, like you say, and and let's bring it into this this character a little bit because I've always really liked the actor uh, Nigel Patrick, who plays Frank Hunter, the science teacher. He was cool. Incidentally, he reminds me a bit of Christopher Nolan. Do you?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hairline, head shape, general demeanor. Right. Yeah, he um, was very
0: Nolan-esque. <laughs> anyway, Nigel Patrick, who is uh yeah, a great British sort of wasn't really a star, but uh he did star in in some films and a strong I, It feels wrong to call him a character actor because he's sort of got the sort of leading man sort of persona. He's not really playing eccentrics and so on, but anyway, he plays mm-hmm. yeah, this this uh a younger, more uh virile science teacher who is, uh, we find out very early in the film, who's having an affair with Mrs. Crocker Harris, uh, Andrew's wife. Uh, yeah, they're, they're carrying on. Sure. It seems to be uh, something that the, that's one of the things is everybody talks about how oblivious Crocker Harris is, that he doesn't really seem to know that this is happening. And it's kind of an open secret throughout the the campus. The other teachers just sort of acknowledge that it's going on, um, but in uh, typical polite British fashion, it's all sort of hush-hush and nobody's nobody's really yeah. acknowledging it.
1: One thought I had about that was uh, I thought Ms. Mrs. Crocker-Harris, the, I, I wrote down several notes of like, this lady just seems unnecessarily, preposterously cruel. She was, yeah, in one moment, she's showing this kind of soft tenderness to Hunter, and then when she's... Even when she's alone with Andrew, she's she's very snide and sharp and rude and unfeeling. And for a lot of the film, I was just thinking, like, my words, it's not enough to cheat on the guy. She also has to just constantly drag him through the mud every chance she gets. And one thing that we find a little bit later on, I think you might have a clip for this, actually. A little bit later on, we find, you know, we... We we learned that he may be more aware than we thought. Let's
0: let's just dive let's dive into that. So I yeah. I want to talk quickly, and this this clip will demonstrate one of them. But this movie has two of what I'm going to go ahead and call from from now on. I'm christening these moments periscope moments, and I'm doing so hmm. because of uh, our first episode in the movie Le Trou. We have a a pivotal moment which concerns a periscope, and you can uh, tune into that episode for more details on that. But essentially, these are moments when you find out something uh, when there's a reveal, a startling reveal perhaps, of something that was already there. So, to set up this clip, I'm going to very briefly touch on the reason this movie is called the Browning version in the first place. So, one of the key characters of this film is Taplow. Taplow—that's uh, the only name that we know him by—and he is a—he's a young student. He's in the lower fifth, and he—he he is in uh, Crocker Harris's class, and he's sort of one of the only students who seems to have some some pity for Mister Crocker Harris or the Croc, as he's known. And yeah, he uh, ends up sort of pity laughing at one of the Croc's jokes, and. Uh, ends up getting kind of targeted by the croc for that. And then later he's he's receiving sort of extra one-on-one tutoring from the croc to, to help with his Greek. And it's during one of these conversations that we start to realize that Taplow has a sort of burgeoning passion for the Greek plays as well. He's disappointed in the very scholastic, dry way in which the plays are being taught to him. But he's clearly latching on to something in the the text of the, the Greek plays that he's dealing with. And and he's finding a, a, a love for them, a passion for them. And he sort of laments to Mr. Crocker Harris that the play isn't coming across, that it's not being taught and translated with more... Vim and vigor and capturing the real passion that it's it's too cold and the crock isn't really having any of it, but reveals that at one point in his life, he had begun his own translation with a lot more poetry and a lot more passion, which Taplow thinks is fascinating. And then it's kind of left there. And later in the film, after Mr. Crocker Harris is dealing with the weight and the reminiscence of his change and leaving and sort of looking back with disappointment at what he considers to be a failure of a tenure at this school and lamenting the loss of his passion and even the death of his soul, as it's put. And at this low point, Taplow reappears with a copy of the Browning translation of this play. And he gifts it to Crocker Harris and this culminates in Crocker Harris sort of a chink in his armor. He lowers his guard and we see some of the emotional landscape of what's going on inside him. And he sort of breaks down and cries at receiving this gift and from someone showing him some kindness. And I call that one of the the, the more devastating moments of the film. And then it... it Well, it it really, but it really leads to this pinnacle devastating moment, which is when his wife returns and seeing how moved he is by this this one little kindness, this bright spot in the bleak landscape of his life, and just immediately tries to undercut it and dash his hopes and says, oh, why that, that little sneak she calls him, like oh he's just he's clearly just trying to bribe you. I saw him mocking you um and uh impersonating you earlier when you weren't looking and this was obviously just a way for him to try and uh, get uh, get in your good graces so that you pass him and he can go yeah. into the science class that he wants. And you can just that was rough. Yeah, and you can just see in that moment that she's completely killed that little spark of of hope that had welled up in in Crocker Harris and Hunter the man who's having an affair with the wife witnesses this whole thing and you can see the the shock in him as well as he realizes what this woman is capable of and the cruelty that she exhibits and he is very displeased so all of that is a really big build up to the the clip that I want to share which is happening right at the end of those events. The the wife has just cut at her husband with those remarks, and he's sort of um, retired from the room to to get ready and to get out of the presence of, of Hunter and his wife. And Hunter, after chastising Mrs. Crocker Harris, follows him to have a conversation with him, and this is part of the conversation.
2: As this may be the last time I shall ever have the opportunity of speaking to you alone, may I give you a piece of advice? I will be glad to listen to it. Leave your wife. So that you may the more easily carry on your intrigue with her. How long have you known about that? Since it began. How did you find out? By information. By whose information? By someone whose word I could scarcely discredit. Oh, no, that's too horrible to think of. Nothing is too horrible to think of, my dear Hunter. It is simply a question of facing facts. She may have told you a lie. Who faced that fact? She never tells me a lie. In all the years that I have been married to her, she has never told me a lie. Told me the truth. She's out to kill you. Powdered glass, you mean? Not that kind of killing. Something deadlier than poisoning the body. So? Oh, yeah. In that other sense, she is, as you rightly say, out to kill me. That is only another fact that I have managed to face. Well, yes, indeed, I have faced the more important fact that she succeeded in her purpose lover girl.
1: Yeah, that scene is a gut punch.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like r- you realize the the perversity and the tragedy of what that relationship has become. And just to to see Hunter just react to how horrible it is that that, that revealed that from the beginning of this affair, the wife has just straight up told him, "I am having an affair with this other teacher." And deal with it. And so all of the little, like, politeness and waltzing around this whole time, he's just been perfectly aware that his wife was was carrying on with someone else. And he's just been, just been dealing with it.
1: So this was – one of the questions I had was about Mrs. Crocker-Harris, her relationship with Andrew, and this whole tangled mess that we find in the movie. So one question I had in my mind as I was watching it was – what caused this guy to lose his thunder? You know, like what caused him to lose steam? What caused him to give up and become this ghost? You know, to me, he really does seem like a ghost for the movie, just haunting this school. Like what, what is it that, that brought him to this, to this lowly state, you know? And, uh, of course, like as it goes on, you find out, oh, he's aware of the affair and everything else. And to me, it kind of becomes a Mobius strip because in my mind, I thought maybe the reason, especially after that reveal, I thought maybe the reason that Mrs. Crocker Harris was such a horrible, horrible person to him was because she knew that he knew and didn't have any respect for him due to his acceptance of the affair. But at the same time, I, I don't think that's the cause. So I like... I, I was trying to figure out, is she just a toxic person? Do you think she's just irredeemably bad? Or do you think that they were both bright eyed and full of wonder at the start of their relationship and they both died together? Or it seems almost like she's parasitic.
0: I think there's a bit of that. That's part of the tragedy of it. And, and certainly, my first viewing of the film, as I say, I've seen it three times. And my first viewing of the film, I was, I don't think I fully grasped the cruelty of. Crocker Harris as well, because he does go out of his way to sort of needlessly jab at students every once in a while, and you can just see just that the the passion is drained out of him and what that's done for him. He, he's certainly much more pitiable than the wife, especially on that first viewing. But as you go into it, you you start to, I think, see some of the the layers that that are there and i think as i said that there are multiple interpretations that you can take and part of it just is losing that spark he just wasn't able to provide her with the with the stimulation um that she wanted with the passion that she needed and it's just become you know it's one of these stereotypical trapped in a loveless marriage things where she has turned to him and she's and i think there's a re- i want to stress that i think that you can read it very easily, as just a person who has lost his passion, who has become disappointed, disaffected with life, and because of that is not holding to that gumption. And I think that's a perfectly moving and a perfectly adequate interpretation of the film, that he doesn't have that gumption, that passion, that he's not sticking up for himself, that he's not going out there, that he got hit by some of the blows of life. And rather than Getting back up and uh, in and into the saddle, to use another cliché, he um, has just let those things slowly beat him down to the point where, yes, it almost feels like she is kind of challenging him to quote unquote be a man. But there's there is another interpretation of this film which I feel that uh, we do at least need to touch on. And that is, there is a reading of this film as well, where the Crocker Harris character is gay. And because of that, he is unable to give, there's a lot of talk about the mind and the body, and the different kinds of love. And the kind of love that he felt that he could have for her, which was an intellectual, uh, maybe a spiritual connection, and the fact that there hasn't been a sexual connection the connection of body has slowly made her bitter and feeling uh, old and trapped. And now she's looking out this way. And this uh, interpretation is easily justified because both the director, the writer, and the main actor were all gay. So the the play by Terrence Radigan, he was a closeted gay man. Uh, as I said, the director, Anthony Asquith. And then Michael Redgrave, in spite of uh, being married and fathering children, at least had some secret affairs with men throughout his life. So there's that aspect that can be read into it as well. I don't think it's the only interpretation, as I know some people take it. But I think that that is an element that you can look at. The passion has gone out. Now, whether that's because of the sexual nature of things and that they aren't able to connect. Well, clearly they're not connecting sexually. And that's part of it. It's hinted at in very polite subtext and in sort of the restrained British way, and certainly uh, the British way of the time period and and the period in which this film is made as well. Um, It's not something that's very openly addressed, but there's a lack of sexual connection. And whether that is because he's literally unable to connect with her sexually, or whether it's just because that he's lost his passion for life and that he's allowed himself to become this very cold person, whichever the case, it's clear that she's trapped and she's been putting up with this and she's lashing out, not with, not with pity, but with cruelty. That is her response. Her her response is to become, to become snide and vicious.
1: And like you say, that almost kind of mirrors itself in his behavior too. Uh, Like you were saying, he sort of toys with Tapello a bit and kind of calls him out for a pity laugh and, seems unreceptive to kindness. So it, it seems like to that extent, his his wife has kind of rubbed off on him in a way. And that, that manifestation of regret, like the regret sort of manifests itself as resentment and cruelty toward everyone else.
0: Yeah, and I think that's maybe where the cautionary tale aspect comes into it, which is that was on this third viewing, that was the part that stood out to me the most, is this film almost sounds out as a warning of what can happen if you allow these things to to take hold of you if you don't reach out for what is yours if you forget your passion if you don't take hold and say maybe life didn't go exactly the way that I wanted it to but I'm not giving up you know i mean we're we're mm-hmm. full of Cliches today, but I think that that's this that, because this film isn't very cliched, and and that's one of the things that I find is is so rich is that it doesn't give you this very stereotypical sort of easy story of okay, here are these these people and you know and he's he's lost. I mean, that's a story we've seen a million times, right? Someone who's who's lost their yeah. lust for life and now it's going to be awakened. And usually it's awakened by romance, right? Especially in Western films, you know, he's lost his passion, and then the the young girl comes into his life and uh, makes him see the world through new eyes. But mm-hmm. But this film, you know, his passion is really sort of awakened through regret. It's basically remorse comes in, and remorse is the teacher here that tells him what he could have been. And he sees this this young person and this act of kindness. And it's all these small events that culminate into something large and give us those periscope moments. And in that way, Anthony Asquith in this play, as a director, he's really brought out in the film version, these small moments with big consequences in a way that reminds me of Satyajit Ray or Asghar Ferrati these moments that are completely believable within the scope of reality and the world as we know it but that have these sort of emotional shockwaves that that really resonate and cause their their emotional devastation i suppose
1: yeah yeah no i think that's that's i have to say you've kind of won me over to the film just by sharing your thoughts on it yes <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, that's a compelling case for the movie. It's interesting to watch it all kind of play out, and like you said, in a very, very uncliched way. And again, like you said, with uh, Mrs. Crocker-Harris sort of nipping in the bud that brief spark that he gets from Taplow, in most films, I would say, that cover similar subject matter, that's the turning point, and it's all downhill from there, you know, in a good way in most films like and by good I mean narratively like it's it's supposed to be the happy moment where everything's good from that point on to have this moment where Taplow brings him the book and you think ah this is where it all turns around this is where things finally pick up and he gets his life back together and then his wife comes in and just obliterates it I think one of the reasons that for me that's kind of a as you call it a periscope moment to me it, it kind of pinpoints the crux of his entire story. I, I feel like his entire internal conflict is summed up in that moment where he gets this brief flower poking out of the concrete, you know, this, this brief moment where he sees the real sincerity of a student who really wants to learn and who really kind of appreciates what he may have once tried to do for students you you get this 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 thing where it's this glimpse of what he thought his life might have been like in a way, seeing Taplow who basically forces this effect to have been to have happened to him through through sheer force of will. He just really wants to get something out of this class and to get this connection with Crocker Harris, and so he gets this glimpse of what might have been of what he might have had. And then the resentment, the cruelty of Mrs. Crocker Harris enters the scene and suddenly you think to yourself, you know what, you could probably replicate this moment a hundred times backward and forward through time and you could easily see how he has become the husk of a man he is now. Although, as you say, it's a very natural thing that happens is over the course of life when a handful of things don't go our way, we just sort of slowly lose we stop taking inventory of ourselves and what we're doing. We, we sort of lose sight of of what made us get out of bed in the morning. But yeah, it was it was interesting to see like the, this lowly state that he's in through the course of this film, and then we see the few chances he has to kind of pick up the pieces a bit. His wife is there to remind him of what a loathsome creature he is. And it's not until after he gets that advice from Hunter and finally, begrudgingly, slowly concedes to the possibility of leaving her and starting a life kind of slightly afresh that yeah. you get that glimmer of hope in those final moments. Yeah. There was one clip I wanted to share and it was, it was more out of a sense of I, I, you having won me over to the film almost makes me feel guilty to share it at this point, but it's still a fantastic scene in its own right. The last five minutes of the film, he's giving his concluding speech to the, to the student body He and another teacher are both leaving, and they both give their parting thoughts. And it's a fairly long speech. I just trimmed it down to the last minute or so. But I wanted to kind of look at his speech and the effect it has on the students.
2: I claim no excuses. When I came here, I... I knew what I had to do, and... I have not done it. I have failed, and... Miserably failed, And I can only hope that you and the countless others who have gone before will find it in your hearts to forgive me for having let you down. I shall not find it so easy to forgive myself. That is all. Goodbye.
1: The main reason I wanted to share that clip initially from my place of, uh, of smarmy ignorance at the start was just thinking how in terms of catharsis, it's actually a bit painful to have the lead character acknowledge what a miserable failure he is. And have that be the victory that everyone in the student body, all the students, Hunter, everybody, they just start clapping cheerfully, just like, yes, yeah, all right. And it's you see similar applause and similar reactions in, again, your more cliched films mm-hmm. where somebody comes up and gives a very inspiring speech about like how meaningful this has been or, you know, something that that evokes strong feelings of. I don't know, a can-do attitude or, you know, some some cathartic payoff. And this was my first time ever, I think, seeing a film where the moment of catharsis is basically a character just saying, like, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I wish I had done better. And then everybody is just,
0: yeah!
1: Because <laughs> to me, it's it, I'm glad that, you know, it had the effect it did on both the students in Hunter and on... Crocker Harris, because in my mind, if I had given a speech where I was apologizing for, you know, a lifetime of failure as a teacher and to have everybody cheer, I would I would probably feel a little bit worse because it's sort of like their reaction is like, ah, at least you can admit it, you know, you old failure kind of thing. But you describing it the way you have and me kind of taking stock, I'm realizing it is, an, in fact, a very, very powerful moment because he doesn't need... The validation he doesn't need people to come up to him and say, "Oh no, no, you did fine." You know, that's not the point.
0: Yeah, we have the wonderful Wilfred Hyde White character, Doctor Frobisher. I (laughs) just—he is an actor that I just I love him in everything he's in. He's the one who plays the—I don't know what he is—the dean of the school, the president of the college. I don't know. I don't know what he is, but he's clearly the head administrator, right? And he represents—he very much represents that fakery. That nobody's really having. I mean, both Mr. and Mrs. Crocker-Harris, for whatever they put on as their public face in their private lives, they're both very sharp, very in tune with their surroundings. They both know what's going on, and they both know that that guy is a great big phony. He's the one that's, oh, Mr. Crocker-Harris, you're wonderful, and blah, 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 which uh, Wilfred Hyde-White was one of the ultimate character actors for playing that kind of part. And he has many, many good <laughs> roles in, in great films, you know, from My Fair Lady to The Third Man and so on. But you're right. That's the sort of fake appearance that he certainly doesn't need any more of. He's he's much too smart for that sort of thing to have any real yeah. effect on him. And And when I first saw the film, this applause moment kind of struck an odd note with me, even having liked the film initially more than you did. I thought well that's kind of you know it seems like such a big change for the student body to suddenly be giving that sort of applause and i and i think it really does tie into there's at one point in the film they even reference what certainly anyone in the audience would have been thinking at the time that they were comparing this movie to goodbye mr chips which is one of the very first special teacher movies you know the inspiring teacher mm-hmm. who we see over the course of his life, and all the you know people, all the many lives he's touched through his sacrifice of teaching over the years, and now they're all coming together to give him that send off that he deserves as the great person that he is, and so on and so forth. And um, yeah. that clearly isn't the case for Crocker Harris, but they're kind of reflecting that moment in the end. And um, the play ends with him telling Doctor Frobisher that he's going to go first. It basically has him coming with gumption and saying, I guess we should mention, one of the things, one of the insult to injury things that happened as Crocker Harris is getting ready to leave the school. He's a senior member of the school, a senior teacher. And so he typically ought to be giving the final speech, but it had been switched around to make room for a more popular teacher who was like a rugby star or something. And they were going to give him the final speech. And the play ends with, Crocker-Harris saying, no, actually, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to give the final speech as is my right. And then it ends. But in the movie, they add it in and we get to actually see that speech where he apologizes for being a a failure and sort of embraces that honesty and then receives that round of applause. And I almost wonder this time watching it, whether that applause is purely the sound of it, the, the weight of it, the degree of it whether or that's not, not somewhat in the mind of crocker Harris I think I think certainly that the school is responding positively to what he's confessed and the look he's taken and the degree of honesty with which he approached it, and the call you know the call to arms to not abandon your passion, that sort of thing. But but it almost feels a bit uh, stylized, a bit a bit surreal that final moment. Yeah, yeah. That maybe the applause wasn't quite to that degree in reality. But to Crocker Harris and to the stand that he's finally taking, that's the the subjective weight of the applause.
1: Yeah. No, that's a good take on it. Well, I have to say, Bo, I'm glad that you suggested this film. I went into it a boy. I came out a man. Uh. <laughs> I left thinking it was a good film. As I said, I did feel bored watching it. But hearing your take on things, I can tell that there was a lot going on beneath the surface that I was not oblivious to, but just not. I was taking it for granted. I think I may give this film another watch.
0: So, in other words, you're not going to stand up and be a man like Crocker Harris learned, and you're just going to kowtow to my opinion of the film. Is that what you're saying?
1: It's like you didn't even watch it. <laughs> Oh. No, it was, it, was, it was a good film. Um, well, since this was my first time watching it, I'll say uh, we're trying to forego the rating system since we've kind of, behind the scenes, we've talked and realized that using a five-point rating system to compare Criterion films to streaming originals is not exactly the fairest fight. <laughs> so what we're trying to do instead is sort of talk about who might find value in this film. Yeah,
0: our quick Reasons to Watch segment.
1: Yeah, reasons to watch. I will say, for me, after the, after my first viewing and uh, discussing it here, I would say this film would probably be of value to people who have reached a point in their lives where they can honestly reflect on whether or not they've done their best up to that point. I think it's a movie that invites self-reflection. It's a movie about self-reflection. I, th- I think uh, if you're going in looking for something on the level of, say, Dead Poet Society or something that has kind of a bit more on-the-nose messaging as far as here's what a good teacher looks like, here's what a good student looks like, here's the system trying to keep them down, you know, very clear lines in the sand as far as who you should root for, why you should care. If you're into that kind of thing, you may leave feeling as I did. You may feel a bit bored or a bit uh, out of sorts, but if you go into it, I think... And Bo may confirm this. If you go into it ready to take a hard, honest look at yourself vicariously through this Crocker Harris fella, you may find yourself having a very enriching experience.
0: Yeah. and, And I think it is like you point out, it is a much more ambiguous film, like whether or not Crocker Harris deserves what's happened to him, whether or not he's someone that we should pity or how we ought to feel about him and really all of the characters You know, I mean, their flaws are very real here, and there's no—it leans toward a kind of a catharsis and a clear cut. uh, It right at the end, you know, a direction that we can move with this. But really, it leaves a lot more ambiguous than something you're going to get from Dead Poet Society, for example. Mm -hmm. And as for me, reasons to watch—I say one of them has got to be the performance by Michael Redgrave. I think it's probably. His best performance, at least out of his filmography that I've seen so far. And I think it's one, I think it's a great um, pre method acting performance. And I, and I may mention this again, but just briefly, you know, we have around this time we start to lean toward what's called realism and acting and the method, and Marlon Brando comes on the scene and sort of changes the style of acting. And and there's a, a there's a little um, i suppose you could call it a pet peeve of mine where people sort of get the idea i think that oh actors before marlon brando they just didn't know how to act good is kind of the the idea like oh they can't they can't act well it was something that we learned along the way and certainly you know there's methods and people build off each other and so on but i think What people sometimes fail to realize is that nobody is watching these films from the 30s and 40s and thinking like, ah, yes, that is just a slice. You know, I can't tell that that person's even acting. It's very much a stylized choice that was in favor of the times. It was a way of reaching emotion. And I feel like although the Crocker-Harris performance, Michael Redgrave's performance in this film is very uh, subdued and restrained, especially for the classic era of Western film, It is still in that vein of kind of theatrical, larger-than-life acting in a way, but that's something they were very cognizant of, and I think this is a great performance of that in that it is very effective. It is purposely constructed to elicit the emotions that I think it succeeds at eliciting. So in brief, I think watch it for a great acting performance. Watch it for the reasons Chris said, I agree. And know going in that this is a quiet, sort of slow-paced film. But to me, at least, I found that I was riveted the whole time. I was watching this emotional sort of chess match happening, and I was engaged, wondering what is going to happen next. But yeah, it is on the quieter, more subdued spectrum of films.
1: Come for the acting, stay for the emotional devastation.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) In a nutshell.
1: Well, for our second film for this episode, I was supposed to pick a film in response to the Browning version. The film I picked was a little Netflix original called The Land of Steady Habits, starring Ben Mendelsohn, Edie Falco, Bill Camp. I think Bill Camp is kind of joining the ranks of Mark Rylance and other actors who seem to be discovered late in life but prove to have a knack for really good
0: acting. Mark Rylance, yeah, one of, one of the greats.
1: Yeah. And it's just amazing to see, like, uh, an older actor. Uh, I don't want to get too far into Rylance country, because I do think this applies somewhat to Bill Camp, though not as extensively. It's just interesting to me when I see some new actor I've never seen before and think, oh, this guy's going to be a rising talent. I'm excited to see what he does <laughs> next. And then I realize, oh, this guy's like 50, <laughs> 50, 55, 60, who knows. But it's better late than never, I guess. But anyways, so I picked this film as an answer to the Browning version because I thought it was... Maybe a more modern take on a somewhat similar theme of a man who is aging a bit, facing retirement, taking inventory of the life he has lived up to this point it, with a very, very different take, I think, obviously. So I'm curious, Beau, what did you think of The Land of Steady Habits?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I admit that I felt that the connection was a little bit tenuous, a little bit contrived, which is sort of the point sometimes, especially <laughs> considering the the strictures of this podcast. But as I mused on it more, I found more and more connections thematically between these films, as mm-hmm. odd as that might be at first blush. Because th- this is a film, right, about change. It's about disappointment it's about a lot of characters, uh, which it's sometimes hard to sympathize with. <laughs> and yeah, the land of steady habits. So it's Ben Mendelssohn. Ben Mendelssohn? I don't know how it's pronounced. Mendelssohn Mendelssohn? Yes. I don't know. Anyway, he's an actor that I actually like quite a bit. And we can we can get into that as we go along. Likewise. But- the the gist of the story is that he is it, – it opens with him sort of a kind of, a I guess, a, a fish out of water wandering through this like a sort of like bed, bath and beyond decorative home store looking around at all these choices and he, he's picking out decor for his apartment that he's moving into and come to find out he's uh, recently divorced from his wife they have a grown-up son who's played by Thomas Mann who people will recognize from uh me earl and the dying girl and he's now embarking on this uh new life as uh, as a bachelor and which <laughs> bachelor living is a motif of the film we open up within the first segment of the film he's in succession pretty quick succession bedded two different women in a sort of very mundane kind of passionless hedonism like he's yeah, he, yeah he's um he's sort of just doing these things because that's what you do in fact there's one point he meets a woman in a store and it does a sort of quick jump cut from them having their initial first conversation to boom they're in bed together and this is not a film that's going to Try and make any of this really sexy. In fact, impotence is going to be a theme of the film. And, and he's there and they're in the act together in it's daylight. You know, there's no this is there's no candles and music. It's just two kind of sad naked adults. <laughs> <laughs> and he even looks over and sees on her bedstand a book called Living with Shame. <laughs> And and that's our that's our introduction our introduction to this film. And we're throughout the film, we're just sort of going to have a very loose plot constructed around the kind of downward spiral of this character as he's cut loose from the moorings of his predictable, safe life as a something in the world of finance, a guy who was very well-to-do and has retired early and left his wife and is now kind of searching for his place in the great wide ocean of newness. <laughs> and it is a, you know, I mentioned plotless. Yeah, it is. It's a sort of meandering film. It's confusing in, in some ways as you try and collect your idea of what's happening and who these characters are and you slowly starting to realize that each character is very flawed and has points that, that we may not like or easily sympathize with. And I, I mentioned the acting, and so I, I'm just going to dive right into that because, as I said, yeah. uh, Ben Middleson is an actor who I find terrific at portraying a sort of mischievous and malicious subtext. He's uh, an Australian actor, and I'm thinking of, of his dark, malicious roles in things like Bloodline, which is a Netflix series with Kyle Chandler. Did you ever see that series? Mm-hmm. You did.
1: I saw the I saw the pilot episode. I kept meaning to finish it.
0: Ah, it's um, it turns into a very much a neo noir really heavy themes of uh, family politics and so on. Mm. And Ben does what I think he does best in this, in Animal Kingdom, which is an Australian film, Mm. in playing these very dark, unpredictable characters who exude this sort of playfulness that you know can turn on a dime and become something dark and horrifying, which I think it's ironic that Seeing him in these roles, in these juicy sort of villain roles, then moving toward playing much more stereotypical villains in Ready Player One and Rogue One and big blockbuster films. Mm -hmm. And I feel like totally stripping him of those layers and making him very two-dimensional bad guy, which I thought was very strange. It's almost like someone was inspired by seeing him playing these dark characters in other plays, uh, in other movies, sorry, and thought, well, what if I just pop him into one of these roles, but don't give him any actual meat <laughs> to give us that. And I feel like, for yeah. me, his performance in this is sort of drained out because, I mean, he's a character that in modern parlance, we'd say that his character is, you know, he, he's, he's a bastard. Right. This guy is, mm-hmm. he's kind of a piece of work. He's uh, this selfish guy. Kind of, he's sort of going through like a midlife crisis, maybe like a, he's a little older, like kind of a three fourths life crisis or something. <laughs> and trying to, as he's trying to find his new way and he's doing drugs at the kids and he's not being responsible. And there's sort of repercussions that come from that throughout the film. But for all of that, I sort of felt that. A lot of his, it, it, it did have time to develop, but I, I felt, and tell me what you think, but I feel like his character yeah. was really just sort of skirting the surface of what this character could be.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. Like, And I, I feel like while we're on the subject of acting, I feel like a lot of that is due purely to Ben Mendelsohn looking deeper into what might make this character tick and what might make him behave the way he's behaving. Almost like he's... He's injecting it with more meaning than maybe he initially got out of the script.
0: Yeah, and that might be the case. And the the almost superficial, sometimes comical level at which this film wants to live makes me think, and hear me out on this, (laughs) new lead actor, I've recast the film with Ricky Gervais. (laughs) To me, suddenly the tone of the film changes in a way that kind of makes... I feel almost might have been like a better fit in a way for this whole thing. It it, it reminds me of yeah. the Ricky Gervais kind of being that, that bastard for whom you have some sympathy. He's a jerk. He's selfish. But you can see in him, you can recognize the petty side of yourself. And he gets to dive into those because I do think Gervais, in addition to being a comedian, has uh, acting chops. I'm a fan of Gervais. And I almost yeah, feel I like agreed. he would have been at least more of a an obvious choice for this character.
2: That's a
1: really good point. I, I hadn't even considered that because I think that's one thing that I think Gervais has always done a really good job of conveying in arguably subtle ways is he's really good at conveying this hint of self-loathing and of loathing of the world around him. Yeah. Uh, but in such a way that's not necessarily – off-putting, as weird as that may be. And I think that that could have been a a crucial ingredient to this character because just like I couldn't see Gervais chewing the scenery as one of Mendelssohn's heavier roles, I think that there was a a sort of levity and a wryness required by the role of this character in The Land of Steady Habits. That I Yeah, Gervais seems like he would have been a fantastic fit for that.
0: Yeah, and... I want. I'll talk a little bit more about what I feel like are some of the kind of interesting tonal shifts in this film. But it is one of those like kind of living in the zone of dramedy, kind of sometimes it's comical, sometimes it isn't. In which is a zone that, like I say, I feel like Ricky Gervais is a more obvious choice for that kind of a film. But if it had gone a little bit more in a different direction, I want to play my clip for this film which is a scene where the the middleson character has gone is uh, with an old buddy he's ended up at a strip club he didn't really want to go there and he's kind of hanging out there uh just going through the motions of being there because his buddy wants to be there and he runs into this girl not a stripper but just a a girl who's there and they have a a little bit of a of a connection and they're both like yeah we don't want to be here and so they they decide to to leave and they get a taxi. And he absentmindedly gives the, the cab driver the address to his old home, the home where his wife and son and his wife's new boyfriend live. And so he gets dropped off there sort of too late to rectify his mistake. And so now he's shown up, he's drunk, and he's at his, his old house where his wife now lives with the boyfriend. And he sort of goes, uh the hell with it and goes in to the house anyway with his with his old key and this is the fallout from that as he's sort of poking around the house late at night a weird flavor are you kidding me nope tastes like flowers
2: you can't just come in here i'm,
0: I'm getting some
3: things that are rightfully mine no you're drunk some of this stuff i have a right to have it in my house i left a whole box of stuff for you over here by the door Then what's all this? I gave you half. Okay, sorry. You care so much about family pictures, you need to come and break in here in the middle of the night. What's wrong with you? Well, I am a little dizzy. Why don't you take a seat? Don't tell me what you do. I'll never sit down anyway. Why don't you give me those keys? Donnie, don't do this now. We can't have this happen again. Come on. You're not going to do this again, right, Dad? You know what? You never know.
2: Preston, can you drive your father home, please?
3: You got it.
0: Yeah, and and he he turns over the keys. So... (laughs) uh, to me, it, this, the the darkness there, the smirk, that was getting into the zone. And I don't want to make it sound like Ben is a one-trick pony, but he just does this stuff so well. That playful, uh, malicious, l- these levels of subtext that I wish the film had – or I could see a film at least that dug more in that direction because you get to see – Yeah, played
1: to his strengths a bit more.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that was a moment that I feel like gave us a taste of of what we could have been getting from this performance and from this this movie, which, as I say, sort of jumps all over the place, even to the point of kind of switching who the – I mean, Anders Harris, the who is the the character that Ben Mendelsohn is playing, is the lead character. But we do actually spend a lot of time kind of jumping around. For a while, we're following his son, Preston Harris. Mm-hmm. Who is sort of in a similar place? He's a, uh, I think they say he's 27, and he's living at home. And they're kind of going like, uh, "What did we do wrong? Like, why isn't he out there? You know, why isn't he more sorted? Why hasn't he figured things out?" And we're sort of seeing that reflected, you know, uh, like father, like son, kind of as they're both sort of unmoored. But but there's a moment I want to bring up real quick, where to give an idea of sort of the tones of this film. The Preston character, the son, played by Thomas Mann, he's at one point he's lost his job from doing a very stupid and irresponsible thing. And now he's sort of got this deadbeat job uh, delivering alcohol <laughs> as uh you know, sort of a postmates DoorDash, I don't know, delivery guy for this alcohol and spirits thing. And he yeah. he shows up at the the home of I don't think we ever learn their last names, but they're friends of the family and they're big characters in the film, uh, important characters yeah, in the film. Yeah. And he he's at the house with a friend of his mom's, and she's sort of going like, "Oh wow, you know what what's happened to you?" and helping him out and giving him advice, and they're exchanging things over some plot points I'm not going to get into. And then just as sort of a non sequitur, in the middle of that conversation, she suddenly says, as he's kind of getting ready to leave, she says. And this has nothing to do, like I said, non sequitur, nothing to do with what they've been talking about, which is much more about his life. She just suddenly says, I'm sorry you have such a disappointing dad. And he says, Okay. (laughs) And to me, that's an exchange right of like a Wes Anderson film. I mean, that felt like it just, and it it was strange in the way. And I think that the director, I should say her name, and I don't know that I can. Nicole Hallefkiner. Nicole Olivekinner. I don't know how it's pronounced, but <laughs> she she's clearly going for a kind of real life is messy approach, right? This is a talky film. Uh, it's got comedy. It's got drama. It's got all this stuff. And, and it's kind of, it's not meant to have sort of the Hollywood polish. It's much more in the quirky, dramedy zone. And then there's intense drama. And then you've got that, Sort of line that to me feels like it's something straight out of Wes Anderson. And I don't know, where did you mm-hmm. feel this film sits or do you feel it fits comfortably in any sort of a genre or a type?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you, I think. It was tonally a bit all over the place. If I had to assign it somewhere, I would definitely say it's a, a dramedy that's not afraid to go a bit darker than most, perhaps. I actually thought, speaking of that that kind of bizarre line, I'm sorry you have such a disappointing father. Uh, for a lot of the film, I was doing I, – I found myself falling into a habit that I also did with the Browning version where I was trying to ask myself, you know, like, clearly Anders has regrets. Clearly he's – there's something eating at him. What could this – like, what could this thing be that has caused him to so impulsively uh, – this is one of the things that I was – narratively just kind of didn't sit right with me for the first little while of – he gave everything up. He gave up his finance job and he explains why that he hated the work and it, you know, seemed like it made him feel like a terrible person and everything. But he leaves behind his job, his family, his house, everything to start a new life, but he doesn't know what to do with that new life. You know, it's he he's, he's just kind of this aimless still no sense of direction. And one thing that I think we haven't really mentioned yet is the bond that he starts to form with this kid, the son of the family friends, Charlie. Charlie, and uh, Charlie is a drug addict. He's the guy who he initially gets high on PCP with at a Christmas party that Charlie's family is throwing, and then that same night at the same party, Charlie ODs and has to go to the hospital. And for some reason, Anders feels this kind of—I feel maybe the right word is like this obligation to Charlie. You know, he he yeah. ends up stealing a book a Kama Sutra book, I think it was, yes. to bring to Charlie in the hospital. I don't think it was intentional. I think he just grabbed whatever he could find and brought it to him, which again, just Andrews just seems incredibly impulsive through a lot of the film. But he feels this sense of responsibility over Charlie. And uh, there's this moment partway through the film, I think, and this is actually the clip I'd like to share. Charlie's parents want to send him to a rehab Camp, like a, a rehab facility to dry him out and get him on the right path and everything. And of course, Charlie does not want to do that. So he decides to run away. And before he runs away, he pays a visit to Anders, to Ben Mendelssohn's character, and tells him to watch after his turtle form because he's not gonna he's not gonna do it. And then they they end up going to Charlie's secret clubhouse, which I think was just a trailer amidst a bunch of other trailers.
0: It was a boat. Just kind of
1: Oh, a boat. That's right. Yeah, that as, is like as a little yard. boat docked in the... So they, they're in there and uh, Charlie drops a bomb on Anders that his ex-wife is going to get married to this new boyfriend. And that kind of throws him off a bit. And then Charlie asks him if he has any scotch, I think. And then Anders says, do you have anything stronger? And so uh, what follows is a scene that I think to me perhaps best captured what's going on with Anders internally through a lot of this film. I wish my kid would want to hang
3: out with me. But he just doesn't. He's got no interest at all. It's just like in this great big news since I saw Why does he want to get married so fast? What's that about? You know why? Cuz when he was a kid, he had this big floppy bear. It was like a big saggy sh- bear and he carried it everywhere. And I mean everywhere. And he held on to that thing, he held on to that thing way too long. Way past the time when he was supposed to be hanging on to a bear, you know. So we took it out and, and we hit it And we pretended that it was lost. Because we were, I don't know, we were worried about him being teased or that he wouldn't grow up or some bullshit. I don't know. I mean, oh God, he was so betrayed. We betrayed him. He was devastated. He was heartbroken. What a stupid...
2: To be a parent. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be.
3: Oh, I feel like you guys, you, you guys all think that you have to, like, worry all the time. Like, if you weren't constantly worrying, like, you're bad parents or
0: something. What is that?
3: You know what? I'm going to take you home. What? Get your things
1: we are going to go. Seriously? Yeah. So the reason that I wanted to talk about that scene, I think at times this film seems a bit on the nose, but there are other times where maybe it's just, maybe it makes me feel a little bit smarter, so I'm giving it more slack than it deserves. But I, I really liked this moment where he's talking about his failure as a father to his son and how... You know, they thought they were doing the right thing, taking the bear away. And at this point in the film, we know that their son has he's had a drug problem. He has a gambling problem. He's 27. Like you said, his life is non-existent. Uh, you know, he, he's got nothing to build off of. And I think in this moment, he's kind of acknowledging the part he may have had to play In his son's life as it currently stands by using a singular example that may have been indicative of kind of this broad tapestry of failures as parents. And I think the reason I like it so much is because I think throughout the film, he, like us, the audience, he's trying to figure out what he's trying to fill his life with. He's trying to figure out what was missing to make him do all this in the first place because he's clearly seeking something. He just doesn't know what. And I think in this moment, he realizes the thing that he's trying to fill his life with is something that is gone. It's something that the the chance to be a father to his son, which he can't just grab that out of thin air, you know, having retired and divorced and moved out on his own and everything. The thing that he's missing is an opportunity that's now gone. And uh, it's a very somber, sobering realization to have I think and the first time I watched the film that speech got me just a little bit emotional being a father myself and it's it's the kind of thing I worry about is is failing my daughter in a way that she could end up similar to how how Andrew's son ends up and I think at that moment you know one thing that's interesting there's this kind of nice gentle piano music playing while he's reflecting on this mishap with his son and then Charlie speaks up and the music kind of cuts out, sort of fades away while Charlie just says, like, you know, it's like you think you have to worry or else you're bad parents or something. And then he it kind of dawns on Anders. I think the music cutting out is kind of this motif of of Anders realizing that he's lost the opportunity to help his son have a good life. But maybe there's still a chance for this this lost Charlie kid and then, he, you know, that's when he decides to try and take him home.
0: Yeah, to, to do the
1: right thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Until this point, he's he's been more or less a commiserator with Charlie. He's been on the same level as Charlie, just kind of like, yeah, you're right. Parents suck kind of thing. And in this moment, he realizes that the thing that he's missing is the chance to have been a good parent.
0: This is a film that certainly brings up a lot more questions than it answers. Um, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing by any means. And one of the points that it brings up there, right, is that line that he says, what a stupid thing to be a parent. And that reminds me, to throw another Wes Anderson comparison in there, it, it reminds me of that scene in Moonrise Kingdom where Frances McDormand and, and Bill Murray are laying in bed. And she says something to the effect of, we just have to like keep doing our best. And he says, that's not going to be enough and it's sort of this it's it's a darkly comic moment in a way that that line could maybe be darkly comic though from this film and uh there's never any clear answer like oh we've now figured out you know by the end of the film what parenting should look like and the steps that ought to be taken it's more of yeah this is this is rough and it's sort of just musing on the problems of life and it's sort of reaching out and desiring for something more, you know, almost kind of a a forlorn, you know, again, another Wes Anderson comparison. It's sort of wealthy champagne problems, just sort of angsty trying to figure out life. And it comes across almost as a, as a sort of prayer to God or the universe saying, what do we do? We're here. How do I deal with this? I don't know how to deal with this. And that to me is kind of the whole thrust of this film. Like, here I am in life, it's messy, there's competing desires and impulses, and I don't know what to do about it.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's a fantastic summary as well. It's a film that doesn't really pretend to have any answers. It's not pretending that there's a particularly right answer to this. I won't even go into spoilers here, because I do think it's a film worth watching. There's some some developments happen later in the film, and uh, this is a film, much like the Browning version, it does not end cleanly, and it does not end with a clear answer as to what the future holds, whether the protagonist should regret any of the events that have transpired over the course of the film. It just shows us this window into a life that may be filled with regret, and... Just examines I, I think uh for me, the Land of Steady Habits and the Browning version were both films about two wildly different people confronting the possibility that they have a lot to regret in life and wondering what they might do next.
0: Yeah. I agree. Lots of disappointment and regret from, like you say, two two very different protagonists with two very different families, but the interpersonal and introspective struggles are at the heart of both films.
1: Yeah. Well, Bo, reasons to watch. What would make you recommend The Land of Steady Habits to someone?
0: So I would say if you're interested in musing on those questions, right, if you are willing to wade into sort of a dramedy and kind of think about life and regret in a way that's sometimes heavy and sometimes not, then this is maybe going to be a film for you. I wish that I'd seen... um, I don't need every film to have a sort of clear-cut story that I can really feel is happening, but I do wish this film had taken more of... I don't know. it, It does tend to kind of wander from one element to the next in some ways that it's quirky enough to have sort of visual motifs, and there's the idea of... You know, we have a turtle going through it the whole time, a steady turtle, you know, known as a steady animal. The last shot is of a turtle just keeping its head barely above water. And that's sort of maybe kind of the bleak hope of the film is you're just going to just keep your head above the water. There's certainly themes of honesty and its value. That's kind of the arc of both the movies is coming to some sort of honesty with oneself and that perhaps fueling the next stage of life. I mean, this is certainly a movie that kind of... Th- this is a movie, I think, that ends simply because the runtime is done. Like, There's not really an ending. It's just this is when we're going to stop following these characters for now. And I'm wandering a bit, but I-, I guess what I'm saying is if you're interested in kind of diving into a dramedy that asks some tough questions and uh, you're... Not too bothered about form, that's a reason to watch.
1: Yeah, I I think I'd agree with you. If you're not a stickler for plot structure, for clear driving conflicts, protagonists, antagonists and whatnot, if you're able to kind of just sit back and let a story just sort of happen to you in whatever form it happens to take... I think you'd be able to tolerate it. And if you are a fan of really good performances, uh, I think Ben Mendelsohn and Bill Camp and uh, several other actors, I think there were pretty good performances all around in the film. Although, as you said, Bo, I'm not going to be able to get a Ricky Gervais version out of my head now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the version we'll never see. But uh, yeah, good performances. And it could be a film to just kind of sit back and let it wash over you. But, yeah, uh For films about regrets, I personally have no regrets. I'm glad we watched both movies. And how? Well, about to pick out uh, next episode to get us started on the right foot here. Right. I have a film for you that I would like you to watch. Oh, boy. uh, Before you come up with a companion piece for me. This is perhaps one of the most well-known Netflix original movies. Mixed reception, as it were. But uh, I, I would love to discuss with you the movie bird box with sandra bullock
0: bird box okay i haven't seen it
1: i'm very excited to hear what you think
0: all right yeah i'm gonna dive in i'll watch bird box i'll come up with uh, my criterion response to the film and we'll be discussing both those movies in episode three
1: Excellent. Well, for everybody who's stuck it out with us up to this point, thanks for sticking around. We love having you here and we look forward to joining you again next episode.